This is going to sound corny and maybe a bit dumb. But on Christmas Day, two of my recent journalism students at Chapman University out here in Southern California let me know that their parents gave them my book as a holiday present. And it absolutely warmed my heart. The seemingly smallest thing, but huge in the eyes of the beholder. So as the year comes to an end, I don't know, just keep in mind that warm words and tiny acts can go a long, long way. They really matter. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers, Sing and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Jason Gay, the exceptional Wall Street Journal sports columnist and author of the new book, I Wouldn't Do That If I Were Me, Modern Blunders and Modest Triumphs, but mostly blunders. This is episode number 291. Let's sing some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Jason, first of all, I would say you are right now the number one most requested guest for the show who I've had not had on yet. So it's like a compliment insult. I haven't had, I haven't felt you're important yeah. enough to have on yet, but people really want to hear from you. So that's you know. take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. The only other uh, possibility is that my mother is a listener of the show and is just like, you know, sending you repeat emails from phantom accounts. So I appreciate it. I'm honored to be here. I'm a listener, too. Your mom actually has written me several times asking not to have you on. So that's kind of <laughs> that's more realistic. Yeah. Um, and I was thinking about something. I, I actually think you are the perfect, perfect guy for this. Based on your writing at the Wall Street Journal, based on your new book. So I teach adjunct at a school out here in California called Chapman yeah. University. And every now and then you get students who come along and they're like, they'll say, I'm a really funny writer. Yeah. And then you read what they write and it's actually not very funny. Right. It's. And I think writing funny and writing snarky and writing sharp is really, really hard. And I happen to think you're really, really, really good at it. And this is my long intro. I think people make the mistake of thinking that writing funny with a voice is the same thing as writing what you say. You know, like you you telling it to you, Jason Gay, telling a joke is not the same thing as right. you writing a joke. And self-deprecating response aside that might come here. What are the keys to writing, quote unquote, funny or with humor? Well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind of you to suggest. And, um, you know, at the risk of, you know, sounding like the comedians who like are like, oh, you know, the moment you try to describe what's funny, it's not funny. I mean, I think that in my instance, uh, you have to have a certain amount of um, liberty to fail and to not be funny. And I'm certainly capable of that on a daily basis. Uh, I think that for everything that works, there are oftentimes that, you know, two or three things that don't. Um, and, and in my, you know, particular instance with writing this column or other stuff that I've done uh, writing wise, you know, I, I can only use the tools that I got, you know, and, and you're advanced enough in your career to know this feeling too. It's like, I got what I got, right? And like, I can't be somebody else. As much as I would love to wake up one morning and write like Jeff Perlman or Gary Smith or Lee Montville, uh, I, I am who I am and this is what I'm stuck with. And, you know, the process of trying to refine that and get better at it and um, write effectively, clearly in a short amount of time, um, you know, things that I feel like I've gotten better at over time. And so I don't think it's like a conscious thing of like, this is going to be the funny column I'm going to do. It's, you know, effectively a reflection of who I am. And in terms of like writing how I talk, it's funny you should say that because I think you're probably absolutely right. 
However, it's completely counter to the advice that I often give, which is that when you're stuck, you should really write like you talk. Like just imagine yourself in a scenario of explaining um, an athlete or a situation or a scenario in the same way that you would be if you or I were sitting in a room together. Um, that is often a way to climb yourself out of whether it's writer's block or whatever inertia you're feeling at the time. So yeah, um, you know, I appreciate it. I definitely had like role models and people that I still read and people I find a lot more funny than I am, but uh, yeah, it's probably not the easiest thing to do right out of the gate. Oh, wait, I want to get really nerdy here. I actually literally said what you just said to a student this semester, which is like, if you're in trouble, just think of it like you're just, you're talking to a friend about the jets and you're yeah. like, God, the Jets suck. They really suck. They don't have a quarterback. They don't have a running back and they're blah, blah, blah. Weirdly, like that kind of works. If you were writing a column about the Jets, yeah. you wrote, the Jets suck. They don't yeah. have a quarterback. They don't have a wide, you know. Yeah, there's your lead. <laughs> but there is a difference. There is a difference between how you talk. Yes. Conversationally and how you write conversation. Like you couldn't literally dictate your column. Just the conversation you have with your wife about World Cup and make it a good column could you sure no and like i think that like you know this podcast a key example uh i'm oftentimes mortified by my ability to articulate what i'm trying to think um you know i don't know how you feel um, you're a pretty direct and plain spoken guy but like i feel like oftentimes i i really do have to write it down if i want to say it effectively but i guess i mean it from the sort of you know thought organization aspect of it like the idea of like when you tell a story to a friend, oftentimes you are arranging the content in its proper way. You are leading with the most exciting aspect of it or the thing that's most arresting about the moment. And you're kind of going from there and you're sort of starting from a bigger picture to a more narrow detail. And I think that is a good process for writing. And I often, I also sort of have a reaction to like the opposite of it, which is, and I was definitely guilty of this uh, starting out was that, I just sort of felt like when I was starting in a newspaper that like there was a, a newspaper writing, you know, that the sort of like, you know, there was sort of this august way that words were arranged in a newspaper, these sort of long, like throat clearing type phrases and paragraphs and things and like that are totally unnatural and not at all the way that people talk. And so I don't like that kind of thing. So that's, you know, me trying to avoid that at all costs. As a columnist, how do you determine what's worth writing about, what subject is worth actually tackling, and what's just something stupid in your mind that maybe it was a good idea for a second, but not workable? I, I just never write as if you're feeling obligated. I mean, and I'm fortunate enough to work for a place like, no one's picking up the Wall Street Journal to get the paper of record about what happened in sports yesterday. You know, we can be selective. You know, we're doing a handful of stories each day with a very small staff. You know, we can sort of pick and choose what we can be excited and interested about, report on, cover, et cetera. You know, it was sort of a narrow palette. But yeah, the moment you are writing, and this applies to not just column writing, but really anything, I think if you're not engaged by the topic, if it's not driving you in some fashion or challenging, it doesn't have to be something like, oh, this is easy and I want it's a layup and I can do this in 10 minutes, you know, something that just engages you, you know, this, I mean, you're in a much, much, much larger way, you do this with books, the idea that you're going to spend two, three years of your life with something that you're not completely engaged with would be a nightmare. So in a very smaller fractional way, I think that column writing is the same thing. And so like the things that I do do are hopefully topical, but interesting to me and hopefully interesting to other people. I mean, the thing that we get, you know, this is not just applicable to me, but everybody at works, 
you know, the journal sports team, um, you know, the number one thing we hear from readers is like, I don't come to this paper to read about sports, but, you know, like, or I don't know about sports or I don't follow this, but, you know, and, and they're, they're saying that as a compliment that they were engaged somehow with the story. So I think it actually kind of works rather well with the way their audience is put together. I mean, this is a totally different thing than working in a place like say a sports illustrated or athletic or ESPN, where you're coming, you know, to meet an audience that is really, really, you know, versed in sports and you are the sort of, that's the, that's the thing above the, the, the full sports. And we're kind of in the wake of a lot of other stuff that's happening, much more serious, sober stuff that's happening in financial worlds and politics are all around the world. And like, we just get to be, you know, I don't want to say value add because it's such a terrible term, but we're 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 just you know, it's not on us to make or break the paper on a daily basis. So we get to be a little more fun. Do you feel like you are valued at the Wall Street Journal? Like, do people? I'm, I'm not trying to get you fired. I don't mean like, oh, we don't give a yeah, shit. About like, no. do you matter, or are you sort of like, ah, just let them do what they want? They're kind of good over there. <laughs> uh, you know, depending on the day. Uh, no, I think we feel very, very valued by. You know, first of all, the people that we work for that are our bosses, but uh, and then the people that we really work for, which is the, the readers of the newspaper, and that has been a process. I've been here for kind of the whole time, almost of the them having a dedicated sports section, which is about I guess eleven, twelve years now, and you know, it really did start from a place of you know. People say the Wall Street Journal has a sports section. What? And that was a solid six to seven years, right? And over time, that's become um, a question you hear less of and you hear less of for, from the audience as well. And like, you know, to get into the more, you know, particular aspects of it, I mean, like, you know, we see the numbers, we see, we know what people read and what they don't read. And so we're actually w- well aware of the fact that we we do feel very much part of people's like reading diet in the Wall Street Journal, which is a real thrill for us because, you know, again, we're sort of lean and mean here. So we're excited about that still. Wait, so you had a piece, uh, November 27th, Michigan beats Ohio State again, and I may never return to America, which I got to say, I freaking loved. And you wrote, uh, it was from Qatar, you wrote, like yeah. almost everyone, including a few anxious Ann Arbor graduates I know, I did not expect the Michigan Wolverines to find much success in Columbus on Saturday. I figured the Buckeyes would toy with them a bit, keep Michigan in the game for a quarter or two, then college football returned to its natural order. Ohio State would romp by several touchdowns, shatter Michigan's dreamy season, and I would not hear another peep from the Brazilian Wolverines who work in the journal. That's not what happened at all. Instead, it's my nightmare. It was visiting Michigan that politely kept Ohio State around before sprinting away in the second half with a 54-23 victory. Is the Wolverines, not the Buckeyes, who romped, beating Ohio State for the second straight year, doing it in Columbus for the first time since 2000, preserving an undefeated season, and setting up a shot at a national title. I'm never going to hear the end of it. And it's really interesting because um, a lot of people rightly sort of credit Bill Simmons with the movement of, um, you know, a sports columnist to sort of align between fan and columnist and the old days when you could never, ever root for anything. You couldn't. And you and him symbolize sort of a, a crossing over of mediums and a crossing of sort of fan and, writing from different perspectives. Is it weird being a journalist, being brought up learning a certain way or was it weird and then adjusting to this idea? No, I can write from the perspective of a guy who has a vested interest in blank. Yeah, it's weird, you know, coming from a background of sort of strict news reporting 
appreciate it. You know, having a, a a life now where I can sort of acknowledge my biases and 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 lean right into them for humor. And what you're describing there, and what you're reading there is. If I was teaching a class, it is an example of milking a gag for all it's worth. Because I think we were on like years seven or eight of that running series about Michigan jokes. But the great thing that happened along the way was that it used to, because I, I was at the University of Wisconsin and it was like, you know, we always sort of looked up at Michigan as our evil stepbrother and, uh, but Michigan was bad, you know, and it was sort of like we, the, the, we had turned on the bully. We were the big kid on the block. And then all of a sudden, Michigan has become great in these last couple of years. So the gag is just milked away on and on. And, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks with the playoffs. But, yeah, I mean, what's a funny thing in a column like that is that you do have to actually write at some point in there why the hell I'm writing this, like, vitriol about Michigan, I have to like put in there somewhere. There has to be a line that says the journal is, you know, lousy with Wolverines. It's just like Wolverines for days and days. And it is true. I mean, at one point, I think I had a Wolverine and a Wolverine and a Wolverine and a Wolverine as my sort of chain of editors up above me. I mean, four. Um, and that's sort of been maintained over time, which is crazy. I don't know what it is. It's a great school. I mean, in all credit, I didn't say that. It's just public. Um, but like, <laughs> produces a lot of incredibly talented people and smart people. Um, and the journal is full of them. So yeah, you do have to actually like sort of explain to people because every once in a while, like you do get someone who's really angry and they don't understand like what is the is the my malfunction that I have to like, keep doing this, but. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know this from being a, a a newspaper reader, and as I was like an appreciator of the greats before us, that once they sank their teeth into something that clicked for whatever reason, you just go back and you hit that thing, you know, whether it's once a year or whatever it happens that like, you know, I love columns like that. You know, I haven't done one. I was talking about this with somebody. One of my favorite like techniques that... Um, you know, we were in columns when I was reading growing up were like the sort of bits columns, you know, like, so like, I think it was Jimmy Cannon who kind of started that genre of like, here's one thought, one line, one thought, one line. And like, we sort of mock those nowadays, like, ah, oh, like the lazy, like, you know, hack columns, but like, I love those columns. I love like 40 thoughts and like 40 lines. That was great. Great stuff. Give me more of that. I've never done it. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta try. I think we have a bad habit in our business of dismissing stuff from like the seventies and eighties and being like, Oh, that was so cool. Oh, yeah. And then you're like, actually, I really enjoyed that. Like, Oh wait, I enjoyed that. And I actually read it every week, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, I, you know, on this topic, one thing I've been thinking about recently is that like one thing that was really around in the seventies and eighties and maybe a little bit of the nineties, but definitely the growth of ESPN changed was that there was always a great deal of venom from the press towards television people. Television people were eyed with great suspicion. They were a bunch of haircuts and, you know, teeth uh, who are like, you know, not worthy of, you know, uh, print consideration. And something happened along the way, probably because so many print people migrated to television that we became incredibly respectful of like people who are talking on TV and that didn't exist. Like Jim Murray was not sitting around like wrapped, paying attention to like what like people on television were. I mean, they were haircuts. They were people who were to be ridiculed and made fun of and so on. Let's bring that back. Jeff. <laughs> I'm with you. All right. So in the column I just read, you wrote, um, again, I figured the Buckeyes were toward them a bit. Keep yeah. Michigan in the game for a quarter or two. Then college football returned to its natural order. Ohio State would romp by several touchdowns, shatter Michigan's dreamy season, and I would not hear another peep from the Brazilian Wolverines who work at the Journal. Period. New paragraph, one sentence. That's not what happened. Period. 
new paragraph, one sentence at all, period. <laughs> if you read like just an example, my Bo Jackson book, I do that all the time. I'm a huge fan of the did it, it period, did it, it period. Yeah. I think I go to that well way too often because yeah. I just love it. And I wonder, do you have devices like that, like the period, single word, period, sentence, period, that you use and do you ever worry about certain devices losing effectiveness or is it okay to use these things over and over again? Uh, I do have devices and yes, I do worry about overusing them. Absolutely. I mean, how can you not? You can't like write all the time and not feel like you're kind of going back to the same well, I'll get it again, whether it's style topics, word choice, you know, like I'm sometimes like, oh man, I really fell in love with this word over the last like, you know, 90 days and I've had it repeated and repeated in columns and, you know, um, uh, I think that like having some kind of distribution of style is useful. And like, I've read your work and I know that it's not one thing. Like if you wrote every aspect of your book, like you are, uh, you know, Mickey Spillane, it would not work that way. But when you can hit something hard, you know, here and there to drive home a point, I think it can be an effective technique elsewhere in a book. There'll be a lot more expository writing. There'll be longer sentences, longer paragraphs, thoughts, et cetera. And then you, if you hit it, you know, like I, you know, I guess it's like what it is, what they say with like, you know, dieting everything in moderation, right? It's like, I don't, I don't ever want to wave people off. Like we both know that like in the world of like, you know, giving advice to people who are coming up in journalism and taking classes and so on, a lot of people get up in front of a room and give you all these kinds of rules. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. I hate all that stuff. I, 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 I feel like if you can pull it off, good for you. Everything in moderation, things work for a reason. I mean, obviously you don't want to, you know, you, you, you're, you know, you want, you want to work hard. You want to, you don't want to lift. You don't want to like take from other people, but you're influenced by it short and you can have stylistic changes and alterations and make them your own um, in a way that I think can be compelling and persuasive. And I would never wave people off and say like, don't do one sentence stories, blah, blah, blah. And I want to be clear that, what we're talking about is different than a different kind of column that I don't think I do. And I know you don't do as a writer, which is like every paragraph is one sentence, yeah. <laughs> which was a style that was kind of pervasive for a while. And you don't see much of it anymore. Um, well, you know, and, and I think that the other thing is like, I think, you know, Brian Curtis has talked about this a little bit on his regular show that like the internet changed column writing in the respect that like the sort of like sermon on the mount, like I am completely losing my mind on this topic. And this person is like, that has been replaced by a, you know, I don't know if a, a lamer or more nuanced or a different kind of style that is a lot less like I'm losing my mind about a particular topic that used to be very much a constant and something that people look forward to, honestly. My all time favorite article is an article almost no one has read. And it was written by Steve Buckley. Do you know Steve Buckley? Of course I do. What well, do? Oh, Steve's a great guy. And he wrote a piece for Boston Magazine in 1991 about mm -hmm. a just a long deceased soldier named Stanley Teven. And he came mm -hmm. across the Stanley Teven traffic <sighs> circle and he wanted yeah. to find out who this guy was. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. I have to send it to you. It's so good. Yeah. And in the story, he had one sentence and it was describing these guys drinking and he was describing the atmosphere and he used the word beery, B-E-E-R-Y. Okay. Period. He wrote blah, 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 beery, period. And I looked it up. Beery is not a word. It literally <laughs> does not exist as a word. Yeah. I fucking love that so 
much. I love that he was confident enough in his writing <laughs> to literally make up a word and we all know what it means. Are you confident enough to do that? Have you made up words? Uh, I think I have made up words, but more sort of like so ridiculously explicitly not a word that it was pretty clear that it wasn't a word, you know, not, this is not my invention, but like sort of of the ilk of like, you know, supercalifragilistic. I mean, like that style of made up word. Beery is a word that I would think, is that a word? Maybe it is a word. I don't know. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I don't definitely like, and like, you know, hearing you describe that story made me think of like, there are a lot of great, um, you know, magazine writers, especially who, you know, one of their skill sets was that they could convey scenes and things that happened and not use any of the normal formatting. They, they rarely ever went to quotes. In fact, you could read some of these great writers that have like 6,000 word pieces, you know, one or two live quotes, if at all, in the piece entirely. Everything was through the framework of their viewpoint. And, and again, you wouldn't teach it, but it worked because they were confident enough in, in, in what they were doing. Someone said to me, I don't remember who it was, maybe when I was at SI, 90% of the time, you can say it better than they said it. Yeah. Good advice. But not something I think I want to teach my students in college because I don't think they're ready for that yet for the most part. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 No, I, I think, and you, you, you know, we're all guilty of this still of running quotes uh, that, you know, are not adding much at all. And I still do it to my chagrin. And, 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 you know, sometimes it's just like, you know, you're trying to get out of a column on deadline and so on. But if it's not adding anything, I mean, like in theory, everything that you're building is structure, everything you're writing is structure and should be holding up the ballast of your piece. And like, if it's just like, you know, he played really great today. I mean, like you can say that a hell of a lot better. I mean, I was listening to you talk about your Bo Jackson book recently. And one of the things that I was struck by was like, I can't remember who was interviewing you, but like they kept leading you in the direction of a particular type of answer that was going to be kind of um, lavishing the bow mystique, you know, the sort of bow that the book is very much contrary to and sort of undresses. And I was struck by like how you were just were like, you know, I've just spent like three years with this topic. I'm not like there's an image that got burnished that I'm just not going to contribute to anymore. That's not what this is all about. It's about an entirely different story. And I was struck by like, you know, not just the anecdotes and the stories that you told, but like there was a way that you could have done that, that, um, you know, very much you were not willing to like be a participant in. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. And I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's just back from therapy. Lord, all you Gen Zs keep getting therapy. Does it even help? Don't put me in a box. Ugh, fine, fine. So what'd she say? Did you resolve your emotional unraveling? Are you triggered by something a teacher said? You wouldn't understand. And what she said is, I need something warm and comforting in my life. Something that makes me feel loved and secure. Well, here I am. No, she suggested I go to royalretros.com and choose out an item from their suite of throwback shirts, sweatshirts, winter caps, and jerseys. Something that brings me happiness and fulfillment. Ugh, this is so freaking ridiculous. Can't we just buy you a Snuggie? You're so 1998. Well, don't you think in a way, like, as we get older in this business, like, it's very easy in sports media and probably in media in general to just roll with the tide, roll yeah. with the narrative, whatever it is. It could be a, a game between Ohio State and Michigan and their blood rivals and blah, 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 the maze and whatever. It's almost like as you get older, you start finding ways to go not go against that, but at least find ways. You just think of it differently. You start thinking of it differently. Yeah, yeah, no, a hundred percent. And like, 
this is going to be too way too much of a weeny point, but like great playwrights, screenwriters, like people who do that, you know, listen to the the the, the said word. The great playwrights, everything that is said, the conversation that you or I were having, were we having it written by you know a great playwright? Everything we'd be saying would be in conflict with each other, not like screaming and yelling at each other, but it would be a counter. It would almost be watching like people parry jabs and so on. Like uh, you go back and forth. And yes, absolutely. Like I feel like in conversations, whether it's in, you know, podcasts, television, especially when you have a limited window of time, to, like, you're just kind of like filling the air in between the next thing that they're going to. And like there is a very sort of like complacent way of speaking that we're all just accustomed to and actually probably crave a little bit as viewers. I was watching some World Cup coverage recently and there was a funny line where someone came back from a break and I can't remember which of the, it was one of the ex-soccer player analysts and there's like, well, there's really nothing to say here. And I'm like, well, you're on a set with a camera pointing at you. That's kind of what you're there for, you know, so make it work. <laughs> I just think like, it's easy to be like CJ Stroud. He came from blah, blah, blah. And now he's on the brink of, you could fill in the blank with any athlete ever for 99% of these stories. And in a way, our job is to not. Yeah, you know, and it's funny, you know, like I struggle with that sometimes, the notion of like, uh, you know, whether it's swimming against the tide, it, you know, I support that entirely if it is authentic to how you actually feel, right? The notion of doing it because just to do it, to get attention, you know, which we all know is like a way to get attention. Uh, I'm going to think this differently. I'm going to tell you why uh, all the reasons why Roger Federer is a lousy tennis player. I mean, and like sometimes I find myself like, all right, to take Roger Federer, it's like I'm writing a column about like how great Roger Federer is. Like, does the world really need another column explaining why Roger Federer is a great tennis player? Like, what do, what what would I possibly have to contribute to the world? But that's actually how I feel to tell you opposite or to somehow take a position right. the opposite for the sake of just attention would just not be correct in my book. No, I think, I think your job is not to not write a Roger Federer's great column. I think your job is to find a way to tell it in a way that hasn't been told before. Yeah. And like, I mean, I not to butter you up about Bo still, but like, I feel like the great, 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 great thing about Bo as a topic is that for, he's just somebody who it feels like, he exists in the ether as like appreciated and underappreciated at the same time. This is a simultaneous thing where like, it's impossible for me to forget who he was. And yet hearing the stories, I did forget who he was. I forgot a whole lot about his career. Most of it. In fact, I was just, he was just sort of a pastiche of like video clips in my brain of which I had sort of neglected 99% of them. And that's to me, like, that's the great, great topics. I mean, you know, in terms of like picking topics for sports columns and so on, anytime, I mean, we get it very easy in my world. Like we get to meet people more than halfway down the road of things that they're already enthusiastic about, whether it's their hometown sports team or the school team that they grew up supporting, you know, big things that are happening in the world and sports. Try writing about like the bond market for the Wall Street Journal. Try writing about like something for, you know, a, a very sort of small, you know, industrial business for the Wall Street Journal and cover that in a, in, a, in, a, in a successful way where none of the audience or a very small fraction of the audience knows a hell of a lot, but most don't. I mean, we're embarrassingly lucky in terms of the fact that people are meeting us much, much further on down the road in terms of their engagement and excitement about the topic. It's easy. 
I want to ask you one more thing about, about writing with humor. Something happened to me when I was a kid that was usually influential in my life, which is this. My, my grandma was in a hospital in Washington, D.C. And my dad and I took a walk and we lived in New York, but my grandma was in a hospital in Washington, D.C. And there was a political season in Washington. And all these candidates had their signs up for running for Congress and local elections. My dad said, wouldn't it be funny if we take one of the signs, bring it home and put it up in our, in our neighborhood? So we took a sign for someone running for Congress in Washington, brought it home, put it up in our neighborhood, right? <laughs> and that was the end of the joke. There was no punchline because we never saw any of the reactions. There's no fruition to it. Yeah. But I still laugh every time I think about that. And I wonder when you were writing a column or you're trying to write something, does there need to be necessarily a payoff? Does there need to be a punchline or can you sort of leave it in the reader's hand? That's a really good question. I mean, I'll try to answer it, but see that I understand. I think that like, you definitely need to be clear, I think, in column writing at least. I don't think you'd get away with being arch for very long, like and just sort of like being like, you know, writing things that don't have a, so you have kind of like an Andy Kaufman kind of like spoof of a spoof, you know, kind of humor. I think you do have to be a little bit more direct and straightforward. However, the other aspect of that story, which I think is interesting is that like, you're talking about a time when people did things that weren't um, driven to uh, produce a reaction, like i.e. like it was enough in your head to think of people mystified going past your home being like, who the hell is this person? That alone was that sort of funny fuel that made you feel like it was satisfying. You weren't checking something to find out that 30,000 people looked at it or clicked on it or opened it or went viral on this flat platform and so on. And like, I feel like a lot of those emotions are pretty insidious. And like, it does make me nostalgic for like the days when like, I don't know, like I was reading about Murray recently and like he kind of invented like the the technique of like my team is coming into your town and your town is full of a lot of people who like didn't graduate grade school and like still eat like meat on a stick and like he just you know bashing a city just uh, mercilessly as a as a bit and these cities would like ban Jim Murray from showing up and they'd pass resolutions and so on but like I have to imagine he was pretty oblivious to a lot of it, right? I mean, like now it's like everything's right in your face immediately. Like, you know, like you find out within seconds, like, I mean, here's a very practical thing. You find out in seconds if you have an error in a story. Like I, you, when I worked in magazines, like sometimes like something would come in like two weeks later, be like, ah, uh, yeah, that guy was not the director of the interior. And you're like, ah, like now you find out in 11 seconds, right? And like, it's just a totally different uh, metabolism. In your world of column writing, are you able to avoid the toxic nature of sort of modern media and the reaction to the toxic reaction to, oh, you suck or, oh, you the blah, blah, blah. Are you, are you large, do you largely live outside of that? Maybe a little bit because of a very practical aspect of it. We're behind a paywall of, uh, that's a pretty hard paywall. Yeah. And so I feel like, not to say that the journal is not in the fray, we're certainly capable of getting in the fray of the world. Um, but I feel like it's a different conversation um, and it's sort of less sort of visceral than like, say, going on like a talk show in the morning and saying something on TV. Like we're not sort of in that kind of churn. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like I find like the sort of um, I wrote a story recently that's totally off topic from sports, but I wrote about do you ever watch the White Lotus? You know, so you've been following yeah. those. Yeah, yeah, All of right. course. 
So this is not spoiling anything, so don't get upset anybody. I wrote a piece saying like, this has been on my mind for a couple of seasons of this show, but like these people have every privilege in the world. They have all the, you know, money in the world. Why are they eating in a damn hotel restaurant every single night? I don't get it. It's the one thing that drives me crazy. It's like they're in the middle of Sicily, presumably surrounded by the great tutorials of the world. And like <laughs> going back to the hotel at six o'clock every night and eating off the same menu. Anyway, the story comes out and like, it gets read a little bit by the Wall Street. And, the, you know, the shame of it is that you can watch all this stuff happening in real time on like digital mapping and so on. I think it's passed around the journal audience. And, you know, it's, people are reading it. But then it sort of like jumps a rail into like White Lotus land. And then it goes into this other world of like Reddit and like White Lotus fans and people who don't read the journal. And people, will, you know, once people start like cutting and pasting it like from like one place to another, I'm sure you've had that with excerpts of books where like people will take a chunk out of context and they'll put it on like a college message board or so on. And then you've just lost all like grip on it because they're just, you know, judging it on the basis of whatever, you know, excerpt or piece of it is. So like, I feel like things have like 20 different lives now. And like, to keep track of all of it is obviously impossible and also probably, you know, mentally maddening. So I try to avoid that aspect of it. It's interesting. I just had this talk the other day, actually, like um, with a friend of mine, if the John Rocker story that I wrote in 99 came out today, on the one hand, the reaction would be very raw and it would be, three hours of awfulness, but then a Kardashian would start dating someone new and it would vanish. Like things come and they're very intense and they can get very raw and they can get very mean, but our attention spans are so quick. I feel like even if someone gets really pissed off about something you write and, and then it winds up on a Twitter feed, it's not going to last that long. And I feel like that's the one byproduct of it all. I know you've talked about this at great length, but just from a granular level, I'm, 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 I'm curious. There was no web, right? There was no web version of that story. I think there was, but it wasn't like... There was internet, but there yes. wasn't like social media. There wasn't like virality no. or anything like that. So it, it, everything moves at a much slower pace. So the story comes out and then the day two story is rocker reaction to the story. And then what? It sort of no, goes... I mean, it's like lasts for days is what you're describing. Yeah. It lasted a very long time. It's almost like back then it was a digestive process where its story came out and people absorb it and sports media gets a hold of it yeah. and sports radio starts talking about it. And then maybe two days later, Rocker has a comment and then yeah. he has to apologize a day after that. And then he appears on with Peter Gammons and he talks yeah. about it and then they call the writer and he talks about it. I just think nowadays if that story comes out, it's like, oh, we're really right. mad about this. Oh, look, there's another shiny object and we move on. A hundred percent. And I think about that all the time with like, you know, like we really sound like old geezers when we say this, but there was a time and the rocker story was certainly a case of this when like an individual piece stopped the world for a minute. Yeah. Like it really did. Like for more than a minute, for a few days, like that was, you know, like I had an old boss when I worked at the New York Observer, Peter Kaplan, who's, who called the piece, you know, like, the, you know, it's a corny way of putting it, but it's like the piece that everybody was talking about. It was just the thing. And sometimes it was, you know, Times Magazine piece. Sometimes it was an SI piece like yours, but it was the piece. And like, you don't really get that nowadays. I was thinking about this the other day with Seth Wickersham had that really great piece about Andrew Luck. It's a coup. He got Andrew Luck. Everybody's been trying to get Andrew Luck for years. A piece like that comes out 15 years ago. That stops traffic. It's just yeah. like everybody's like talking about that one piece for a few days. 
Nowadays, there's this immediate appreciation because he's obviously a very good writer, great topic, great execution. But again, yeah, they're chasing the next shiny thing down the trail within hours. And it, there's a, the life cycle of this stuff is so much different. Um, we're recording this. Grant Wall passed away a few days ago. And this is kind of how it works nowadays. He dies. Everyone talks about it for a day and everyone puts up their thoughts. And then it's who are the Colts playing this Sunday? You know, like things just like, yeah. it just goes so quickly. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but it just yeah. is. It's true. It's a merciless cycle. I think in, in that particular instance, there were two things that were very striking with became very, very clear, you know, and hopefully he had some sense of it when he was alive of what an amazing diaspora of people he affected in his life, yeah. uh, not just in the sport, but people far removed from it who, you know, grew up emulating him, inspired by him. Um, but then, you know, a few people made this point, I think it was really important was that like, the stuff people were saying about him, you know, there was the professional praise of like, you know, his, you know, general acumen and, you know, talent. And, you know, I saw that in action, you know, how good he was at his actual job. But the stories people were telling were about like favors and advice and sort of quiet things he was doing on the side to help people out for no reason other than he felt like it was a good thing to help somebody out. Um, and like, yeah, those are, I mean, when you see the sort of like, mercilessness of the cycle and how quickly we do move on but also the things that people remember it sort of should hit you like a hammer what matters and i've thought about that in these last 72 hours i'm sure you have in degrees too i mean there's just no way to observe that and not have those feelings no i agree um because most of the stuff is just very disposable but how you impact people and how you treat people I yeah. I mean, I remember going to a funeral of a writer many, 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 many years ago. Um, it was, I had recently moved to New York City and it was this high profile person. And the stories that were being told were like, he wrote this great piece and this great piece and this great piece and this great piece. And I was like, I'm not disputing the talent, but this was a living, breathing person with children and family and all that. What where were those stories? This is weird that we're just focusing on. And, and that was, actually the complete photographic negative of the reaction to to grant you have a new book out called i wouldn't do that if i were me modern blunders and modest modest triumphs but mostly blunders i was uh laughing out loud reading this um i think my favorite is your uh you wrote a uh, you wrote a piece called uh so it's a series of essays and life observations and it's really well done and um i miss you larry <laughs> <laughs> uh, i just want to read the beginning there was a time in my life where i was excited to send and receive text messages it's true this time actually happened. This was back when I was starting to date Bessie, the spectacular woman who would become my wife. How my heart would leap, leap, leap when a text from her would plinky plink on my $59 per month clamshell cellular telephone, especially if the texts were coming from at an uncommon hour, words on a phone at midnight on a Thursday. And then you wrote, are you awake? What would I write back? It was tantalizing, seductive. Who knew where this would lead? Well, it leads to two kids, 9,000 soccer practices, and extremely boring text. That's where it leads. If a marriage drains texting of suspense, then children suck the life of the experience completely. Texting with Bessie is now a fact-based information exchange. She may as well be married to a bot with artificial intelligence. Hello, did you get the kids? I got the kids. Shopping at store. At store. I mean store. On and on. It's just so ridiculously funny. And my favorite part is when you wrote, um, once in a hurry, Bessie... Bessie accidentally texted me this. Your dad died. <laughs> it arrived matter of factly on my phone. And there was a 90 second gap in which I was completely stunned. I just seen my dad. We played tennis. He seemed good. And then she wrote, I'm so sorry. Your dad called. 
Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, you're working on a book. It's a book of sort of essays, life observational essays. What makes you think? What actually goes through your head where you think, I'm going to write a chapter, I miss you, Larry, about the evolution of your texting habits? Well, for some, a book like this, I mean, which again, is it's all these like sort of like personal, silly essays and pretty light. Um, a lot of trial and error. Like I'm doing a lot of like, you know, failed uh, beginnings, like beginnings of ideas and stories that I'll sit there and, you know, write 200 words of and get either in, uninspired or inspired and keep going at it. And, you know, I think that it's a completely different animal than what you do. I don't know how you do. It still seems like a little bit of a magic trick to people that I know who write long form uh, narrative nonfiction. I don't know how it's done. Um, I'd like to give it a try at some point. But in my case, yeah, it's sort of just like, if it's funny to me, I'll stay with it for a bit. Uh, but I definitely, at this point in my life, know that I have to accumulate a good deal of material to sort of winnow away the stuff that works. And if you hold up that book, you'll know that it's it ain't the power broker it's 200 pages buddy you know and like yeah that's that's just how i do it and like you know like one of the things that i'm you've talked about this too like you know family your writing life becomes a series of funny hours and you know your life is mostly in starbucks i believe right or has that changed a little bit oh not that much pretty nice. <laughs> uh, mine was too i mean but we moved you know i lived in new york city for a very, very long time and we lived in a tiny apartment in which i had zero privacy and did almost all my writing in very funny places now we have a house we live in maryland and I have, a, I, have a, I have a writing room, which feels like incredibly cool. And like now, but I sort of missed a little bit of that sort of fray. I missed that sort of like, I don't care if someone is being murdered in the corner of this like coffee shop right now. I am locked in. I got to do 500 words right now. And, you know, that's, I, I don't have that kind of discipline anymore. I'm losing it. Okay. I'm going to write about texting with my wife. Yeah. What strikes you as funny about that enough to write about it? It's a good question. I mean, I don't know for sure. I mean, it's a, it's a bet by me that this is enough of a commonality experience that the reader will be interested in it. I mean, there's, there's something that happens with writing in the first person where, you know, again, to talk about things that, you know, when you and I were starting out, was really frowned upon like like the notion of writing the first person like no 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 and i don't think yeah, i did it for like the first 10 years i was you know getting a check um uh you have to be very confident that even though these are your mundane thoughts other people are gonna want to be interested in those mundane thoughts and get something out of them um it's a bet by you and it requires a deg degree of arrogance for sure right it's like calling this like no one gets a column because they're underconfident about their worldview, right? You're supposed to like think that like, you're important enough to say something. Um, and like on a micro level, that's what this is. And like this book um, and the book that I wrote before it, I am just trying to steal an idea that existed in our world a generation and a half ago, which is the sort of like humor column book, you know, the books that were written by folks like, you know, Dave Barry. Irma Baumbach, Louis Grizzard, um, Molly Ivins, and so on. I mean, the best of this used to be full of newspaper yeah. reports. And this was also byproduct of business and the world of syndication and Art Bookwald's column appearing in 4,000 newspapers around the country, which is why art had a boat. Um, 
you know, I'm just trying to kind of like do that almost in a way that like, you know, Michael Buble makes like classic records. I'm just like do a little bit of like a sort of a classic form of humor writing Uh, because nowadays, I don't know the last time you looked at the humor bestseller list, but it's, it's famous people. It's by and large famous people and actors and, and, and people that you are household names are the people who, you know, get to write high volume humor uh and sedaris right it's it's a, it's a very short list so trying to bring it back a little bit um and i am embarrassingly happy that people will pick it up when you get a book deal do you have expectations do you do you check your amazon ranking a million times or do you write the book send off the book have the book come out and you're happy the book came out and you just hope for the best Oh, unfortunately, I wish it were that. I wish it were like, my work is here done. And I sometimes wonder, like, like is that what like Grisham's life is like? He's like, here it is, boys. See you later. Like, I'm done. Like, I, maybe it is. It probably is for somebody like that. But you have been somewhat of a, you know, North Star for me and your very directness about the lack of glamour in this, that the job really begins upon publication and you have to be, not just shameless, but shameless in a way you've never been in your entire life in terms of, you know, soliciting people, you know, sending copies of the book, asking, not not taking no for an answer, but asking again and then again, and then maybe a fifth and a sixth time just to be sure, right? I think you put out there, I saw it, like, if you, I'll do any podcast about anything. And by the way, folks, just book selling very, 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 very well. You're not like, you know, scrapping around like to get people to buy this. It's it's a big hit. But you're very direct about the fact that this is a, you know, eat what you kill business now. And uh, it's on you. It's There's no mechanism, even for somebody, you know, like yourself, who's publishing, you know, multiple books in a decade. There's not some built in. I mean, there's probably things you do a lot better, you know, and things that work for you. I'll give Let me ask you this. When you did the trip to Auburn, was that out of your own pocket? So um, the publisher paid $1,000 of it. They gave me $1,000. Not nothing. Not nothing, but I definitely lost money on that trip. I yeah, mean, like, sure. 100%. I a car, flight, you know, hotels. I would say, literally, I would say average price per night of my hotel in Alabama was about $62. <laughs> I was like, I was not lavishing it up. Right. I just like... I, like you, I, you, you write a book, you bust your ass on it. I feel like you got to put everything you have, you can behind it. You know? Um, I mean, I'm just so accustomed to like friends of ours, like coming to me in the same exact scenario and wanting to help in any manner that I can. Um, even if it's just the sort of minimum of like just talking about it. Um, but yeah, you, you, you are acutely aware of the, you know, the, the days of the sort of like, you know, it happens in very small instances still. And it's kind of nice to see the people who have the sort of like, you know, big, big, big book tours and parties and all that kind of stuff. But like most of it is you are on your own uh, and you know more about the success or the failure of the book than anyone, even your publisher. Your publisher is not paying as much attention to your book's success or failure as you are, for sure. I also think, to be honest, a lot of it, there's a lot of perception that isn't reality, which is, okay, I guess there's some people out there who would look at me and say, oh, he's a quote unquote, he's a quote unquote, big time author, whatever that means. Right. But like I'm paying my own way in around Alabama. I'm asking every single person for a favor. I like people would look at you and say, oh, he's a big time columnist. Jason Gay is a big time columnist. But like you don't feel any different than you did 
15 years ago and you still have the same elbow grease and the same need to maybe not prove yourself, but the same need to promote your, like, I think people perceive something that there's a change in you. Maybe when you read a, reach a quote unquote, certain level that isn't reality that I don't feel any different at sitting here at 50, having written a bunch of books than I did at 30 trying to write a bunch of books. Sure. And also I think that like, uh, even a more basic level, there's still a huge section of the population of people who are like, you wrote a book for many people. That's like, you know, it's like the marathon or climbing a mountain or like, it's a life goal. Like it's something that we thought about for a long time. And the fact that you've done multiple ones, I mean, it's, it is, it's sort of like a magic trick to some folks. Um, but yeah, there's a very sort of like practical aspect of it that is very unglamorous and you know, you, the, the success or the failure of the, of the, of the beast is largely dependent upon how much effort you put into it individually, as opposed to any sort of mechanism around it. Let me ask you another thing, which is that the TV show having Showtime, I don't know, Showtime, winning time, winning time. Yeah. <laughs> no time, the book, but winning time, the television show. What did that do? Is it become like, it's like the first sentence in like how you're introduced on a radio show? Or yes. did it actually leap you up a level in terms of like, oh, now this has like got me to a different spot? It has definitely led to more of my books being optioned, which doesn't mean they'll ever become. Oh, yeah. okay. That's interesting. All of a sudden my books start getting optioned. Even so, the back library stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Like I've written 10 books. I think seven are optioned right now. Seven or eight are optioned. Now, as you know, that doesn't mean the odds are still incredibly long that anything becomes of it, but it means someone will pay you 10,000 bucks for six months to, and you're like, well, this is $10,000 I did not have before. So yeah, right. that's yeah. cool. But I don't, I don't, lifestyle doesn't really change anything. You know, no, 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 I don't mean it. I mean it in the terms of like opening you up to a, a world of reader that might oh. not necessarily be like listening to writing podcasts and so on. And it was like, oh yeah, TV show. I saw this whole fuss about it. even if like they weren't like watching it, you know, they they were aware of that, that this existed in the world and that gives a certain like imprimatur to it. I don't think that much actually. I really don't. <laughs> I actually thought it would lead to more sales of the book. And you know, they did the thing where they put the sticker on the front of the book based on the, yeah. you know, but yeah. like it's had some impact, but not huge. Life goes on. Wait, I want to ask you sort of a finally question. And I've been wanting to ask you this for years. Okay. 2013 or 14, I yeah. appeared, you may not even remember this. I was a guest one time on Crowd. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You were on a TV show. You were one of the hosts of a TV show <laughs> with, with among others, Katie Nolan, former Raven, Trevor Price, yes. uh, Regis. Yeah. And this was your foray into TV. And it was, it was in New York. It was a daily five days a week, right? Five days yeah. a week. Yes. Five days a week. One hour live. Live. I remember, I actually remember it, it was kind of in a, it wasn't a basement, but it was in the, I remember brick. I don't know. Anyway, I remember going there and you did it for about a year, I guess a year ish. A year little less than a year. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> was doing, having a TV show. Was it fun? Was it dreadful? Were you like, never again? Are you like, I want to do this again. Did you know it was me to not last? Did you think it would last? All of the above. I mean, I, first of all, it was a total lark that it happened. I got in there like eyeline because I knew Regis. <laughs> Weirdly enough, I'd written about Regis. I Regis was a reader of mine. And when people sat, because the, the show called The Crowd Goes Wild began as an idea of like Regis, daytime television, you know, what's not the leg? We can get this advertiser behind us. And it's just basically a germ of an idea. So they sit with Regis and they're like, who do you like in sports writing? He's like, 
you know, names off probably six daily news writers who are dead and then me. And so I was alive. Um, and so I got some sort of interview, which I thought was like for like, you know, show up every once in a while. And then it evolved into this thing. And uh, I mean, it was a trip. I mean, it, it, it was it almost felt like play acting because, you know, whether it wasn't being watched at any sort of scale, although it's hilarious now because of the way television has evolved, like the ratings that that show got would actually be pretty darn good for what television commands in 2022. But it was totally absurd. We made no sense whatsoever. We looked like sort of like the Adams family up there. Um, I had no television experience other than like occasionally popping up on people's things. Um, I had to learn every aspect of it. I thought for me, the neatest thing was that I had written about television. I had a job at the New York Observer for years writing about like television news. You know, we we're covering like CBS and ABC and the, the dying days of the great anchors and so on. And I thought I knew television. I didn't know crap. I learned so much about not just the way things work, but like how things work. And like I thought, interestingly, on that show, there were two people that kind of like popped, which were Regis, because he's Regis, and then Katie, who was brand new to TV, brand new. She had been a YouTube personality, but for whatever reason, and it's an it's 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 not something you can really teach or like direct. It's like something worked between them and the camera and the audience at home in a way that never worked for me. That was undeniable, and that was something I had no sort of precise idea about before doing it. So, yeah, it's really weird. My only regret is my children are way too young to remember any of it. So I have to show like, there are like six or seven clips that exist on the internet still that I show a great regularity to them to prove. Because my children are at that point in their lives that nothing matters unless it's on YouTube, right? That's the only yeah, right. of course. whole world. Or TikTok. Or TikTok. So yeah, I mean, to answer your question, all of it. I mean, and like, I loved Regis. I thought he was an amazing character, like just as a human being. He was somebody who, of course, everyone knew from doing morning television, doing Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. All that was in the back. You know, this was like Regis's last hurrah on TV. It was the last big live show he did. But, you know, he shook Sinatra's hand, as they say. You know, he had all these stories. And so I, my favorite thing to do at that show was to go into his dressing room and just ask him about people, ask him about Dean Martin, ask him about, you know, he had Walter Winchell on his show. I mean, just like crazy shit like that. Um, kind of an amazing guy. Um, and so, I mean, it's the kind of thing that would never happen in a billion years again to me, but I'm so happy it did happen. Do you remember finding out the show was being canceled and were you sort of expecting it and knew it was coming or was that a, uh, was that? Oh, a I was really bummed. I was super bummed. I was, I, I mean, you make a good amount of money doing it. I mean, that's not a nice thing. Right. And now I was at a point in my life where like we had baby number two on the way. I was like, this is it, man. TV. Amagansett, here we come. And uh <laughs> and uh didn't happen that like that. And and I remember being sort of personally hurt by it, like you know, because you know, everyone writes likes to write the two stories about your television show. The day it arrives and the day it gets canceled. And they really like to write the day it gets canceled. That's a real fun story to write. So you really get your epitaph written for that. And I just remember sort of feeling like professionally humiliated, but it was instructive to be around people who had been in TV for their careers and they're like this is what always happens the exception is the show that goes and goes and goes this is the normal 
you're reacting to something that is the normal state of affairs. You're taking personal something that happens to 99% of things. It's absurd to take it personally. That was useful for me uh, to see it take place. Trevor Price and Georgie Thompson, are they on the Christmas card list? Trevor and Georgie actually are people that I do keep contact with. Trevor lives in Baltimore, which is where I am now, and is an incredible like innovator and has somebody who is like, you know, Trevor's going to be, if he's not already, going to be one of the great moguls of our time because of the stuff that he's doing in animation and, and art students here in Baltimore. And Georgie is effectively royalty in the UK. She's married to Ben Ainsley, Serbin, who is Great Britain's most decorated athlete olympic wise he won many gold medals in sailing so i shit you not the last time i saw georgie this is going to be a really poncy story but like i went to um i was at wimbledon jeff and i'm sitting in the press box and the press box is directly across from uh the royal box and you look in the royal box you're like who do i know that's where like beckham all said or like bradley cooper when he's in town there's freaking Georgie Ainsley sitting there in the royal box behind Kate and Will. And I'm like, if that doesn't bring it to sharp relief, how our paths diverge, here I am, like, eating a ham sandwich in the press box, you know, trying to get my Wi-Fi to work. And there's my ex-colleague there sitting in the royal box behind the future King of England. What did you do wrong is the question. Where did, Where you, did you go wrong for me? Um, wait, let me ask you a final question because I'm required to ask it on this podcast. What is the angriest a subject, an athlete, someone in this profession has been at you in your career? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, can I give you like a true answer that would be slightly disappointing? But like I covered high school sports. High school parents got madder at me than anybody has ever gotten madder at me about neglecting to mention their child's contribution to a football game, to a soccer game, or like like, you know, mentioning something that happened that was unfortunate to their child in an athletic endeavor. I think those kinds of experiences, did you cover high school sports at all? I did. I mean, it's all there. It's like sort of like the cop work of sports writing, although cop work is good for sports writing too. But like, once you've been through the, you know, the the torment of, you know, misspelling a child's name, the one time their child is going to appear in the newspaper, everything else is easy. It's, it's a lot easier to deal with when Novak Djokovic is pissed at a question you asked. Wait, true story. I have two weeks left in my career at the National Tennessee and before I'm leaving for Sports Illustrated. My dream yeah. job, two weeks left. And I cover a David Lipscomb Montgomery Bell high school football game. And I have a line about the David Lipscomb quarterback, David Kirkow. And I say he had an up and down game. His passes were we either way, way too up or way too down. And uh, that week, I get these series of angry, angry calls from David Lipscomb parents. So my editor, Larry Taft, the prep editor at the Tennessean, says, you're going to cover Lipscomb's game next week. Yeah. This, is my, this is my last ever assignment at the National <laughs> Tennessean. I go out to the Lipscomb game. I go down to the field because you go down to the field for the fourth quarter. I'm on the sideline. Yeah. A bunch of the Lipscomb players come up to me. And David Kirkow, the quarterback, walks up to me and says, don't you ever come around here again. <laughs> that was my last ever assignment for the National Tennessee. And so David Kirkout to this day believes he ran me out of town. That, <laughs> that is preps in a nutshell. Someone is always he, mad at you. He did. You never came around there again <laughs> to this day. Yep. <laughs> there you go. Um, well, listen, I appreciate you doing this. I'm glad I finally got you on. Book is great. 
huge admirer of your work and your and your and you know your writing career as a whole. So uh, you know, thank you. Well, so much. likewise, and thank you very much for having me on. I really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. I want to thank today's guest, Jason Gay, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Jason on Twitter at Jason Gay and read his work in the Wall Street Journal. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. Happy holidays, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>